uh, we finished up the Gospel of Matthew uh, last week. Hooray. Uh, and we're taking a few weeks uh, to um, do what we call Q&R, question and response. And so we put out for a couple months uh, to everybody, hey, send in questions that you have about faith or uh, the Bible or anything, and we'll do our best to respond to them. And um, we didn't get as many questions as I would have liked because I guess nobody has any, but we got a few, and they all kind of revolved around the same theme, and that theme was wisdom. So over the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at different aspects of how we gather wisdom as followers of Jesus. We're going to take a look at the things that we... um, the things that we interact with in the world, the ways that we gather wisdom that way. We're going to look at different um, understandings of the doctrines we believe as Christians. What, what should we be really serious about and what should we hold a little more loosely? We're going to take a look at, if I, if I want to study the Bible, where do I go? What are some resources that I can find to help me in my walk with Christ? But this morning, we're going to take a look at... Um, what I would say is the foundation of wisdom, and that is Jesus. Before we dig into this, though, um, I want to tell you a little story. When I was in college, I was a music major down here at NIC, and the kind of foundation of the music program there is a two-year music theory class. And so all the music majors kind of coalesced in this group and there were different kinds of musicians in this group. The, the first kind, they were, they were uh, readers of music. The, the people that could just sit down at a piano and open a piece of sheet music and just go for it. And it was beautiful and amazing. And it didn't matter what it was. You'd open up, they could read it. Um, they, they, maybe, they weren't really sure how to make chords sound good together but they didn't need to because Chopin and Mozart and Beethoven did that for them. There were other people that, I found these people very interesting, they wrote music. They loved chords and harmony and rhythm and the the different rules that you needed to use to, to create beautiful songs, but they couldn't play anything. They were composers, and if they would write something and they'd have it in their mind, but in order to hear it, they needed to go find somebody that could play the oboe or whatever to, to make the actual noise. And then the third group of people, these were the people that everyone hated. They didn't know anything about music, but you gave them an instrument, and they could create amazing songs. And you'd say, how did you come up with that? And they'd go, I don't know. I just sit here, and the music comes out of me. And we hate you. They don't really know why they do that, but it's good. And I think the goal of the music department as we worked our way through it was to kind of make us all a little more well-rounded, to teach us how to read other people's good music, to teach us how to understand the mechanics of how music worked, and to just kind of feel it in our souls. We'll get back to that. I had some discussion with a couple of people a few weeks ago, just basically about what I'm doing when I get up here and I teach. What are my aims, my goals? What kind of outcome am I hoping for? And so today, as we take a look at Jesus 
and his wisdom, part of that is I'd like to open up to you, do my best anyway, to open up my mind to all of you. My wife goes, that's a frightening thing. Because I'm, I'm, I'm still growing as a teacher, and I'm hoping that maybe if I share some of my process with you, uh, you all can help me be better at it. We're going to take a look at some content that um, I'm going to share that comes mainly from a pastor named Zach Eswine. I, I saw him speak on wisdom a few years ago, and, and what he said has really stuck with me, um, and I, I think it's valuable to share. So the bottom line today, the, the, the big takeaway is Jesus is the greatest teacher the world has ever known. If Jesus is the Lord, the Savior, he's, he's God in a human body, when he teaches, he knows what he's doing. And so the first thing I want to look at is the question, how did Jesus teach? Because if I'm a teacher, and, and some of you are also teachers in different capacities as well, I think it makes sense to go like, if I, I want to get better, I want to learn how to teach like Jesus. And that brings us to kind of our launching off passage this morning. We're going to be going a couple different places, so keep your Bible handy. The verses are going to be on the, spring, the screen as well. But Jesus is um, rebuking the generation that he is in, the people that he is teaching, because they are not believing his message. And he says in verse 31 of Luke 11, he says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. So he, he, he brings up this story in the Hebrew scriptures about Solomon, that there's this queen, sometimes she's called the queen of Sheba. She lives very far away, and she hears through the grapevine that Solomon, this king of Israel, the son of King David, is really, really smart. So she drops everything, and she caravans to Jerusalem to learn from the wisdom of this great king. And these, this, this foreigner, this, this woman that is not a worshiper of Yahweh, the God of Israel, takes time to learn from King Solomon. And Jesus says, you people here, you Israelite people, my brothers and sisters in my community, you are not listening to me. And he says, I'm greater than Solomon. King Solomon is called the wisest man that ever lived. So what was King Solomon like? In 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 through 34, we read this. God gave Solomon wisdom, very great insight, and understanding as vast as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone, wiser than Ethan the Ezrite and He-Man and Calcol and Darda and the sons of Mahol. Uh, his reputation extended to all the surrounding nations. Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about trees from the cedar in Lebanon to the hyssop growing out of the wall. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish, emissaries of all peoples sent by every king on earth who had heard of his wisdom came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. Solomon. 
So we read that God gives Solomon wisdom. And he's wiser than a bunch of people that you've never heard of. He-Man and Calcol and Darda. It says something about uh, the fleeting nature of fame. All of the people that we are enamored with now in 3,000 years, no one will know who they are. He writes all these proverbs, these wisdom sayings. He's a songwriter. We have one of his songs, the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's called the Song of Songs. It's the best song that he wrote. Um, And it says that he knew things. He had knowledge. Knowledge is this accumulation of information. Solomon knew a lot of stuff. But also, he was wise. He understood what to do with that knowledge and how to navigate life with it. And he gained understanding by studying the world around him. I want to give you an example of Solomon's wisdom. Imagine you are like the Queen of Sheba going to Jerusalem to visit Solomon, and he is, he's a, he's a king, he's a CEO, he's a great leader of a, a nation, and so he is giving a time management seminar. We all could use a little bit of time management. There's not enough time in the day. There's never, you know, you've, you've got too much stuff to do, not enough time to do it, and he gets up at the podium and says, go to the ant you slacker. Observe its ways and become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provisions in summer. It gathers its food during harvest. How long will you stay in bed, you slacker? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber, your need like a bandit. That's Proverbs chapter 6. So he says, basically, we're going to take a little break from the seminar. I want you to go outside. I want you to find some ants. And I want you to look at them for a while and take notes. And that's it. There's no more tips. It's just that. What a weird takeaway. What a weird thing to tell people to do. Just go go outside and, and, and watch the ants for a while. And so, if Jesus is a greater teacher than Solomon, did, did Jesus do stuff like that? He totally did. Listen to Matthew 6, 26. Jesus says, consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? And in Matthew 4, sorry, Mark 4, he says, the kingdom of God is like this. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the grain on the head. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. Just like Solomon, Jesus is a wisdom teacher and he throws out these things that he intends you to grapple with. Go, go look at the ants. Just go spend some time thinking about them, how they work, and how can you apply that to your life? Think about the birds for a little while. Spend some time pondering the way God cares for them, and they don't even matter like you matter. So Jesus' wisdom, it's not always that clear, is it? If we're honest, 
Jesus says things, and he doesn't always give us all the information. He uses pictures and images, stories, metaphors. It's like he, he gives us all the pieces of a puzzle, but then he leaves it for us to figure out how to put it together. Here's a passage in the Gospel of John. It's kind of long. It's chapter 6, verses 47 through 66. Take a listen to what Jesus does here. Truly, I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus gives this talk about how all of his followers need to eat him and drink his blood. And people are confused, right? That makes sense that people are confused. But you don't see him go, oh, I'm so sorry, guys, you misunderstood me. Let me, let me rephrase it differently. Wait, 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 don't leave. Don't leave. I, I'm, I, I know you weren't ready for that. I, I'm sorry. Come back. We'll, we'll do it a different way. He just kind of throws it out there and then lets people deal with it. And we know if, we, if, we've, if we've dealt with it, the church has dealt with it for a long time now, he's talking about communion, the, the meal that we share together, the, the cup and the, and the bread that represent his body and his blood shed on the cross for our sins. But he's not really in a hurry to clear it up for everyone. So why does Jesus do this? Why does he teach like this? And I think at least partially it has to do with my illustration about my music student friends. Because some of us naturally, we are doers. We just, we just want to know what to do. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Some of us are knowers. 
We're, we, want to, we want to know all the answers. We want to read the books and get the data. We're probably not going to do anything with what we know, but we really, really want to know it. And then some of us are kind of feelers. We're not really interested in knowing. Maybe we want to do, but we just kind of, it's just very nebulous with us, and we're kind of touchy-feely, and, and, and the experience, and the intuition, and very vague. I'm, I'm probably doing a pretty terrible job of explaining that, because I have no idea what that's like. <laughs> but some of you do. But see, in order to really learn the way of Jesus, I think we need to key into all these ways of knowing things. And the problem is our culture doesn't teach us this at all. In school, what's 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 our general school experience? Tell me what I need to know. There's going to be a test on Thursday. I need to know these four things take the test, and then I can forget those four things because I passed the test. And it's just a series of that for 12 or 16 or however many years we end up going for school. What do I need to know? And then there's art. There's the, the, the songs we sing, the movies we watch. Art tells us how we're supposed to feel, doesn't it? You watch a movie and you're like, I don't know, there's some weird things about this, but I really like this character. And, and you, maybe you don't even recognize it, but it's slowly shaping your soul. That's why art is so powerful and sometimes so dangerous. This is how you're supposed to feel. And then there's the church. And the church oftentimes is kind of like broken down into basically just a weekly self-help seminar. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Come to this place for a week. The pastor is supposed to give me three or four little tips for how to live a better life that I can that I can uh, put into practice Monday through Saturday. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. And that I think lends itself to a specific type of communication that we have all gotten really used to in the church, and that's the communication style of the prophet. If Jesus is a sage, he's a wisdom teacher, there are other characters in the Bible that are prophets, and it's a different way of communicating. Here's here's a prophet. This is John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. He said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, you who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then should we do? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? And he told them, don't collect any more taxes than you have been authorized. And some soldiers also questioned him, what should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages." John the Baptist is a prophet. He has a very authoritative, straightforward message, and it prompts the response of, oh my goodness, what should we do? This isn't the only instance of prophetic speech in the Bible. In Acts, Peter spends this long amount of time proclaiming the gospel to his countrymen, that 
he says, you crucified Jesus, but he rose from the dead. And they, when they heard this in Acts 2.37, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so these are moments of prophetic communication. And for many reasons, the church has kind of decided largely that prophetic communication is what we're supposed to be doing. The person up here is supposed to be saying uh, either blessings or woes, and the people are supposed to be responding with, what should we do? And then we're supposed to figure out what we're supposed to do and go out and do it. And, and sometimes that's the right thing. Sometimes that's incredibly helpful. Jesus even has these moments in his ministry where he either rebukes somebody very harshly or calls people to repentance, but it's not his primary way of connecting with people. He primarily speaks like a wise sage, oftentimes in things that are hard to understand. And I want to illustrate the difference between a prophet and a sage in a teaching on the dangers of drunkenness. As Christians, we know that, that abuse of alcohol or drugs is, uh, is a sinful practice that takes us out of uh, alignment with how God would want us to live our lives. And so we're, we're called to stay away from drunkenness. So in Isaiah... The prophet, Isaiah, in chapter 5, he says this, Woe to those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of beer. I love that line. I just think that's great. Who linger in the evening inflamed by wine. At their feast they have lyre, harp, tambourine, flute, and wine. They do not perceive the Lord's actions, and they do not see the works of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile because they lack knowledge. Her dignitaries are starving, and her masses are parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, the grave, enlarges its throat and opens wide its enormous jaws, and down go Zion's dignitaries, her masses, her crowds, and those who celebrate in her. What does Isaiah think about drunkenness? We're all very clear about it. It ends badly. But now listen, listen to the wisdom of Proverbs. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has conflicts? Who has complaints? Who has wounds for no reason? Who has red eyes? Those who linger over wine, those who go looking for mixed wine, don't gaze at wine because it is red, because it gleams in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and you will say absurd things. You'll be like someone sleeping out at sea or lying down on the top of a ship's mast. They struck me, but I feel no pain. They beat me, but I didn't know it. When will I wake up? I'll look for another drink. Notice that it's the same message, the dangers of drunkenness. But look, listen to the tone, listen to the, the questions, the, the kind of entering into the situation. It's almost like the guy that wrote this has been drunk before, or at least knows people who have. It's the same message, but it's a very different way of speaking it. 
And I have found, as I, as I talk with people, as I think about teaching, that entering into a situation like this and asking questions about an issue is oftentimes more disarming and more helpful than directly rebuking like a prophet. I was talking with a friend about this a couple weeks ago, and they, they had some questions about something I said in a sermon. And I was attempting, uh, it turns out fairly badly, to do something like this, to, to pose a set of questions, to let us kind of sit in the moment, some kind of uncomfortable ideas. And my friend asked me about this, and, and she, was, she was confused about what I was saying, and she uh, walked away from it with a very different understanding than I had intended. Her understanding of what I was doing was much more in line with what a prophet would be doing, finding a, 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 a truth, rebuking it. But what I was trying to do, I was just trying to help us kind of sit in a moment. And obviously, it didn't work very well because she totally misunderstood me. But this kind of communication, this kind of communication that draws people in, that, that gets people to wrestle with ideas, like I'm trying to do it better, but it's Jesus' method. And I, I feel like that's a pretty good model to follow. And so as we, as we kind of wrap up this morning, I, I have an agenda as a, as a leader in the church. I, I want to be used by God to shape the lives of the people in this church. I want us all to be people that, that think deeply, that wrestle with hard ideas that we don't always like. I want us to make connections between different areas of our lives and, and see the world in a complex and nuanced way. Because the more I live in the world, the more I study Scripture, the more sure I am about a few things and the more unsure I am about a lot of other things. One of the things I'm sure about is what we celebrated last weekend. Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. I'm, I'm, real, I'm staking my life on it. And there's some other things. That this book, this book is the authoritative word of God. I'm, I'm convinced of it. Our, our God is a, is a trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't quite understand that, but I'm convinced of it. We are saved not by anything that we can do, but by the love and the grace of God that we, we don't deserve. We are, we are adopted into his family simply because he loves us. I'm sure of that. But then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that, that I've become less sure of. What's the end of the world going to be like? I don't know. If, if God is in charge of everything, why do we pray for stuff to change? I have, I have ideas. If God's in charge of everything, does he, does he create the evil in the world? Well, I don't think so, but that's kind of a hard conversation to wrestle with. And over and over and over again, we come to these questions... And I think we want to find really easy answers. But I'm not so sure we always can. 
And I think if we're going to be wise, we want to receive instruction like Jesus gives it, which is sit in this for a little bit. Go, go look at the birds and contemplate what that means to my relationship with you. Spend some time looking at the ants. Think about what does it feel like to be drunk? It's kind of it's shameful. Do you want to feel that way? Do you want to be that guy? Maybe you should stay away from too much alcohol. And these aren't, these aren't really cut and dry things. They have kind of cut and dry truth at the base of them, but they take a little work to get to. And I think we have a problem with this because as American adults, we're being discipled. We're, we're being taught things. Teaching doesn't end when you leave school. You're constantly being taught things. And one of the primary ways we are taught to learn, I think, is through cable news and social media. And it doesn't matter which flavor of cable news or social media you're into. We are all people that are discipled by these things. And the truth is the only thing that Fox and CNN and MSNBC and Facebook and Twitter are concerned about is keeping you connected to their platform. They don't, they don't care about the truth. They don't care about presenting all sides of an issue. They don't want you to spend time pondering the tensions that are in the world. They just want us to consume their content as long as possible because that's what makes them money. And in order for to do that, they're gonna give us content that we find the easiest to digest. And sometimes that content's going to be true. Sometimes it's not. But I think, and there's, there's some, some really interesting studies coming out as we've kind of matured into this age of the internet and, and, and the 24-hour news cycle. But we have become people that are having a hard time concentrating on difficult ideas. We can't... We can't hold something and, and recognize that there are two sides of the story that are in tension right now, and we have to have a very easy answer, and sometimes they don't exist. And so, as we're saturated in this culture that wants to provide us with easy answers, we come to the Scripture, and we read something like this, don't answer a fool according to his foolishness, or you'll be like him yourself. And we think, okay, check that box off. But then the very next verse is answer a fool according to his foolishness or he'll become wise in his own eyes. And so, frankly, foolish people look at that verse and go, look, the Bible's full of contradictions. But I have to think, you think the guy that wrote that down right next to it maybe knew that he wasn't contradicting himself? How much faith do we have in humanity? Very little. What's the point of Proverbs 26, 4 and 5? It's that you might have to make a different decision based on the situation. There are going to be times when it's the right thing to do to act this way, and there are going to be times when it's the right thing to do to act that way. And if we're people that want to just go, tell me what to do, and I will do it, that verse has nothing for us because we have not been equipped to sit in a situation and think through all the variables and walk in wisdom with the information that we've been given. So I think this kind of thinking 
that Jesus' teaching inspires in us, I think it's good for us. But I also think it's good for those that are not yet Christians. Unfortunately, the, the outside world has really lost interest in the prophet. It used to be a generation ago that Billy Graham could stand up and he could say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and you are going to hell and you need to repent and turn and follow Jesus. And people would trust that prophetic message. But if you've had any conversations with people who don't follow Christ lately, you're probably not doing very well if that's your method of conversation. Chances are you're going to go a lot farther sharing the love of God with people if you can learn to communicate with them like a sage, like Jesus does. If you can enter into their situation, can empathize with them, can understand what they're going through and bring to bear the truth of the gospel on that. This is something that artists are really good at. We just did a six-week um, art showing for Lent where we had artistic people in our community um, thoughtfully meditate on the idea of communion and create works of art. Artists have this ability to look at something that everyone sees one way and see it a different way. And so when we saw sculpture and painting and a film and several other different mediums that these artists said, this is what communion is like in my mind. This is what I'm feeling when I think about communion. It allows those of us that aren't built that way to engage in that and go, huh, I've never really thought about it that way. That's also why a lot of the Bible's poetry the Psalms, the Proverbs, much of the Old Testament and some of the New is written as poetry because it begs us to grapple with it, to chew on it, to wrestle with it. And I talked about this a few weeks ago, but that's why the communion meal is this way. When Jesus said, hey, I want you to think about what I've done for you. I want you to think about the sacrifice I'm making on the cross. I want you to think about how my body broken and my blood shed is something that you apply to your life, is something that empowers you. He doesn't give an essay. He gives us a meal. Jesus, the greatest teacher that ever lived, said this thing here, this community experience should shape us and form us into people that are alive in Him and Him alive in us. And how does that work? Nobody's really sure. The church has been fighting about it for 2,000 years. This is what communion is. No, this is what communion is. It's really simple. It's this. No, it's really simple. It's the opposite of that. Okay, we can keep fighting about it, but Jesus still said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this to bring to mind the sacrifices I've made for you. Take it and eat it and drink it and wrestle with the reality that Jesus' death on our behalf and his resurrection from the dead give us access to a kind of life that is different and better than any other kind of life that we could possibly experience. But in order to really know life, we have to be willing to learn from Jesus the way that he wants to teach us.
And so as I prepare to teach every week, I want to learn to teach like Jesus. I want to mine scripture for the truth of God's word, but present it in a way that requires us not to just have easy answers that we can check boxes with and go about our week, but to wrestle with, to sit in. If there are two or three things that we walk away from every week going, man, I don't know about that, but I got to think about it some more. I got I to gotta spend some time putting that into practice. That's the kind of people I want us to be. And maybe that's not normal, but that's okay. Because I think, I think Jesus' way of teaching us is probably the best way. And I think we should be interested in learning to learn from him. And I want to be a teacher as poorly a representation as I am compared to Jesus. I want to be a teacher that's growing more like Jesus in the way I teach. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look at some more questions. We're going to take a look at um, how we can find resources to learn these truths in the Bible. What do, what do we look for when we need help studying Scripture? We're going to take a look at all of the things we believe and, and how tightly we should hold on to some and how loosely we might want to hold on to other ones. And we're going to take a look at all of those things out in the world that we learn from. We're going to take a look at, at social media and the news and art and nature and the community experience of the church and scripture and kind of walk through the importance that those things should have in our lives. So as we close, I would just invite you to come and take the communion, go back to your seats and meditate. Meditate means uh, to chew on, think about, to work around. I mean, it's literally chew on. <laughs> but work around in your heart and your mind. What does it mean that Jesus said his death for me is like this bread and this cup? What is, what is this experience teaching me about the love of God right now? And for many of us, it's a, it's a weird thing, even those of us that take communion every week, to actually spend some time thinking about it that way. But I think that's the kind of thing that Jesus wants us to do. And I think that's the kind of thing that will shape us to be people that are uh, equipped to live the kinds of life that he wants us to live. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.